The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Good morning. We are on the downward slope. We have made it through the introduction in the first six chapters of my book, How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament. So today, we are... Just wait a second. Today, we are on chapter 7, which is still part of the second larger unit, observation, how's the passage communicated? We want to consider words, specific words and concepts, and how they contribute to the overall message of a book. So what we're looking at here are word and concept studies where we want to clarify the meaning of key words and phrases and concepts that are contributing to what the author's trying to help us know. So we've got four, four sections that we're going to target today, just why we need word and concept studies, an overview of key tools, some principles for these kind of studies, and then just the how-to. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are our help. Already we've been reminded how deeply we need help. I thank you that so many have gone before us, studying your word and shaping resources that can help us understand it better so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Thank you for things like computers that can speed up our task. Make us better Bible readers so that we can understand and know you and make you known. Thank you that you have disclosed yourself in a way that we can understand. You use words. Help us today through Christ. Amen. All right, the need, the need for word and concept studies. So God gives us a book and he gives that book to us with clauses made of words. And some of those words can be extremely important. So word meaning is fully determined by context. So consider the word trunk. What are some various contexts where we could see that word? And in those contexts, it would bear very different meanings. An Pardon? An, elephant. An elephant's nose. What else? A box container for holding goods. A tree, the very base of or the, the core of the tree that comes out of the ground. Pardon? Ah. (laughs) Swimming trunks. How are all these words related? An argument. The trunk or branches of an argument. Okay. The outline. Mm -hmm. Trunk column. Do they see that here? Trunk column. It's like a long A long-distance call is called a trunk call. There you go. The long-haul lines were called Sure, that makes sense. The, the long lines um, before satellite were called trunk lines, okay? Trunk highways. And the back of a car, right. So 
the challenge, and some of you may have been in sermons where you've heard this, hopefully not too many here, but where you've been in a church and the teacher or preacher wants to say, oh, if you could just know all that the Greek word means or all that the Hebrew word means, and he begins to unpack all of this freight. I had a, my preaching prof, very first day of class, he came in and he said, building off of old Mother Hubbard, um, he said, we, we can preach anything old. She wasn't young, she was old. I mean, graying, ancient. She had experience, she had age, she'd, she'd endured long seasons of life. She, she was old. Mother. Oh my. The pictures that come to my mind when I just try to grasp that, that concept of mother. There isn't a person on the planet who doesn't have one. Personal, caring, gentle, kind, or wrathful, sharp, pointed. Different shapes, different sizes, but we all have a mother. You were nourished at her breast. She's different from a husband, from a dad. A mother, old mother. Hubbard. She had an identity. She was connected to her father. She bore her father's name. And on it went. You can preach anything. And you can do all kinds of things with words. And and make people feel and lead them astray. Not all that trunk means in every context doesn't mean in each context. What I mean is you can't bring in all the meanings of trunk into one setting. Bar. How do we use it? To prevent someone. To bar them from this region. How does that relate to law? A standard, yes. What do the lawyers have to do in order to be a lawyer? They have to pass the bar. They've got to be able to, in order to enter on the other side of that which separates. What other ways? Bar. A what? A gold bar. A bartender, okay? All of a sudden, we, we have taken the very counter that's in the shape of a bar, and now we think about it as the drinks that are sold there and as the person who's able to give those. Crossing the bar. Crossing the bar. So, are you thinking of law? I'm thinking of ocean tides. Ocean tides. So, we have sandbars... A candy bar. Sue was on that one. (laughs) The son of. So there we go to the Aramaic term, son, which is bar. So we get Simon Bar Jonah. That is the son of Jonah. And, And we even bring it into English, and probably many of you didn't even know that was Hebrew. I mean, Aramaic. A requirement. To reach the bar. How, how high can you go? We do not raise the bar, says Ford. We are the bar. <laughs> right? So we, we use these words, and the challenge is, is to recognize that the goal of a translator is to identify what the meaning of the word is and actually relay it to us in English or in Russian or in Amharic, to to actually translate it and have it relay what that word means, rather than having to, oh, if you only knew all that the Hebrew incorporated. But word meanings, 
Word meanings matter, and we want to make sure that we get it right when God's talking to us. Concepts. Why do I not just limit this to word studies? Why do I say that we need to be considering concept studies? Chris, any... Oh, Lynn? Because a word is part of a context. And many words overlap in meaning with other words. Ultimately, there is no pure synonym. If there is, one of the two words will drop out. But there are substantial synonyms, and within certain contexts, there can be synonyms. So there's different options of word choices, and an author chooses to pick two different words to put parallel in that context because they have a substantial semantic overlap. Well, if well, just recently, I was asked by Desiring God to, in light of our two and a half years in Isaiah, write an article for Desiring God on joy in Isaiah. Give us Isaiah's vision of hedonism. Well, I couldn't just limit myself to joy. I had to consider joy, rejoice, delight, delightful, delighting as a noun, as a verb, exult, exultation, exulting, laugh, laughable, laughing, praise, praiseworthy, praising, Celebrate. Celebration. And ideally, I don't do that work in English, but I do it in Hebrew. And everyone in this room, with just a tiny bit of effort, can do word studies in Hebrew. What you have to realize is that the resources that we have, if you just open up, for example... Strong's English Concordance. How many of you have one of those on your shelf? All right. So a concordance is going to list all of the occurrences of a certain term in the Bible. Now, if you have the ESV, exhaustive concordance, then, and you pick joy, it's going to find all the instances in the ESV where joy is found. But the reason we have all those Strong's numbers, or more commonly today, the Goodrick Kohlenberger numbers, which have replaced Strong's, the reason we have those numbers, and you, you look down the list of all the joy in the ESV, and you see different numbers there, it's because there's different Hebrew terms that the translators chose to represent in English as joy. Now, not only that, what you'd find is that even though there might be multiple words that are translated as joy, other times those same Hebrew words were translated as delight or celebrate or exult. The same term isn't translated consistently the same way in every context, and yet our goal is to understand how is the word that God gave us used elsewhere in the Bible. Bill? Um, Talk about choosing different words, translating different words with the same word, or perhaps translating the same word with different words. Yes. And I think it's like about my own writing, and sometimes I do it just for variety. Yes, just stylistic variation. For sure, for sure. There's often stylistic variation to um, keep it interesting. And because of that, there's the need for considering concepts and not just single words. But we also, my point here is that we want to figure out how to track not just an English word, which could represent multiple different original Hebrew words, 
but rather be able to find what that Hebrew word is and identify all the instances where it is, even though I can't translate them. You might be saying that. I can't translate Hebrew. How do you expect me to do this? I want to try to help us today. So, first key is we want to have the right tools. Now, as I said, there are two different sets of numbering systems for those that don't know Hebrew. There's Strong's, and there's the Goodrick Kohlenberger numbers. Kohlenberger is, his name is up on the screen right now. In the end of the 20th century, he was really the leader on the front end of using computers to help with biblical studies tools. And he spent much, much time creating tools for non-specialists to, that, that could help you study um, from resources that are made of more than words of one syllable. That you could actually be digging in deeply simply by tracking the right numbers. And the reason the Strong's numbers have been replaced is because they were generated in a day when lexical or word studies were less developed, when less languages were known. And so in the last 50 years, there's been a massive expansion of our understanding of the biblical world, of Semitic languages, and how the language family works, and also growth in our understanding of word study tools and the need to add concepts along with specific details of words. So um, a number of words in Hebrew have been re-understood and divided in different ways, and so Goodrick and Kohlenberger added to... um, created a new numbering system that just works alongside of Strong's. And in many of the resources, you can find both numbers. Now, the first step, if you want to study a word, is to find out what that number is, be it the Strong's number or the Goodrick Kohlenberger number. GK is how it would be abbreviated. And you can find that simply by getting an exhaustive concordance of your favorite Bible study translation, look up the word in your ESV, latter days. So you want that word latter. And then you just look up latter in your exhaustive ESV concordance, and it'll and then you look, it'll have the whole list of all the words in the ESV where latter shows up, L-A-T-T-E-R, and you find Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and you look at that little number in the side. That's what you need. The list of words in the Old Testament where L-A-T-T-E-R shows up in the ESV, I'm saying you don't need that list because it doesn't necessarily represent all the times the Hebrew term that you're looking for shows up. So what you want to do is have a tool through which you can, by looking at the numbers, find all the instances of your word with translation that easily follows. So the best tool on the market is this one, the Hebrew-English Concordance to the Old Testament. Now, I just looked up on Amazon, and it appears to be out of print relatively recently. And so the cheapest one is $131. But that motivates me to contact Zondervan and say, you need to get this back up and printed, because there's nothing on the market like it in print. You can do all this on computers as well with the right resources. But what this allows you to do, and all the resources that I'm about to show you are going to allow you to do this, once you've got your number, whether it's the Strong's number or the Gooder Kohlenberger number, all you've got to do is open up this book and find your number. And what it's going to do is have all the instances of the Hebrew word associated with that number listed in a row. That's what it says. A concordance is a list of all instances of a word or phrase within a given testament, usually followed by a sampling of its use in specific contexts. So rather than just listing references, that's all a concordance is, 
What most concordances do is they include a little snippet of the verse that follows. And the beautiful thing here is that in the Hebrew English concordance, you look up your number and then, so you know this is what the Hebrew word is, it lists the Hebrew word and then all of the references of that Hebrew word are translated for you, in this instance, in the NIV. It's just listed. All of them are there. And that's the list you want to work with in trying to establish the range of meanings for your possible word in order to get deeper in to understand your word in context. So the Hebrew-English concordance to the Old Testament, for concordance studies, that's where I would start because the goal is, where's the Hebrew term used? Next, tool. It's called a lexicon. A lexicon might sound, it it looks a lot like a dictionary. And it has similarities to it. A dictionary, though, has all the instances of your word, for example, in English, with English definitions. A lexicon has all the words of a foreign language in English definitions. So it lists the words of a language and gives their range of meaning through equivalent words in a different language followed by specific biblical references where those meanings occur. Now, the reason you do a word study is to be a first-hander. Most of us don't have time all the time to be first-handers, and therefore we rejoice in dictionaries. But you've got to understand that the people who did wrote the dictionaries, a Bible word dictionary, a lexicon, had the same data that you can find on your own. They have the biblical text, and they're going to break all the verses apart. They're, they're, like Moses didn't give us a dictionary. Isaiah didn't pass it along. They just gave us their book. And now we look through the book and identify all the occurrences of certain terms, and then we begin to catalog them. And in, in light of their contexts, and then assess of all the range of meaning, which of, those ra- uh, which of the meanings within that range fits my context best? And what does that imply about my, the meaning of my passage? For English Bible users, this, I think, is the best tool out there. It's called Mounce's Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words. Again, it's all connected to Strong's and Goodrich Kohlenberger numbers. So you just find your number and it will send you where you need to go. This has replaced Vines. How many of you recall Vines word studies. Okay, so Vines is old school, still benefits there. This is more contemporary, following more contemporary practices of word study tools, more aware of the ancient context than Vines was. And this is, and it's also engaging other contemporary tools that you could go to and find um, in Lifeway Bookstore or, better yet, Bethlehem College and Seminary Bookstore. So Mounts' Complete Expository Dictionary. Mounts is the author of the leading Greek grammar textbook used in colleges and seminaries throughout the world. He was... One of my Greek professors, I taught with him, and he's the editor of this volume. Um, Lots of authors, he's the editor. Last group, Theological Word Book. Now, this is a multi-volume dictionary, so think about dictionary. I'm going to open it up, and I'm going to look at words that are in alphabetical order and find the word that I want. A theological word book is going to be the best ones are associated with the Hebrew words rather than the English words. You look up your number, you find, and what you'll find in that dictionary is an expansive article written by a scholar that 
covers the use of that term from Genesis all the way up to the end of the Old Testament, plus there's a section discussing the trajectories that are set in the New Testament, and often there's a discussion of how related terms are used outside the Bible. So, the very best evangelical tool is a massive five-volume set edited by Willem van Gameren called the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. It's a mouthful. But this five-volume set, again, all guided by Strong's and Goodrich Kohlenberger numbers, allows you, after you've done your work, or if you don't have time for work, you can go and read someone else's word study that covers all the texts in the Old Testament where your term is used and likely even has comment on the passage that you're looking at. But they're doing the work that I have my students do And then they compare their work with something like the word studies in here to see, did you arrive at similar conclusions? Did you miss anything? Are you able, now that you've done all the same work that they've done, are you able to critique that author in any way? That's what I have my students do. So these five volumes, you can get them all for Accordance Bible Software or Lagos Bible Software. Um, and then you can just do a quick search. But I've got them on my shelf as well. So you said this is good for evangelicals? Yes. Everything I'm showing you here are made by evangelicals, and they would be the leading resources that I would direct an English Bible, um, an English Bible reader who doesn't know Hebrew but who's wanting to take that extra step into deeper tools. These are the ones that I would point to. Yes, so there are different other resources that, of all these same tools, that most liberals would go to. So the liberals wouldn't usually engage the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. But I encourage my students to engage all the tools that the liberals are using as well. But this is the first stop that I would give to... This is the the evangelical voice. There is a second one. It's a little older, and that's this one. And you can often get this one quite cheap. It was two volumes originally. Now it's a single volume, and it's called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. And it's a beefy it's a beefy volume, this thick. It's only connected to Strong's numbers, not Goodrich Kohlenberger. But it's it's exceptional. And again. Every scholar who's writing in there is a conservative evangelical who has a high view of the authority of Scripture and a a deep conviction in the unity of Scripture. One God authoring everything from Genesis to Revelation. I'm just curious how you would write Kittle Dictionary. So Kittle, uh, how many have heard of Kittle? All right. So Kittle is the chief editor of the leading German liberal dictionary on the New Testament. So the, the, the um, theological, uh, TD, theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And so it's often abbreviated as Kittle. It's originally 12 volumes, and they've condensed it down into one. So there's, you can buy the condensed version. What you just need to know is that there are zero evangelicals writing in that series. Every one is a old-school, liberal um, German. And so the whole book's been, it's been translated into English. You can still find helpful stuff there, but the presuppositions that are guiding each one of those scholars is very radically different than our own. Their understanding of what the Bible is is radically different from our own. Does anybody ever try to write books that try and bridge the gap, so to speak, to try to debate? Um, oh, this the the volume that I just said here is going to in, is going to engage all that liberal work. It's it's engaging it and correcting it and um, offering 
how would the evangelicals address the same data and the same arguments? So this one is going to seek to bridge that gap, but do so from an evangelical perspective. The liberals very, very rarely try to bridge any gaps. They just see us as a very small, radical group of fundamentalists who don't recognize what is objective, namely a naturalistic world that doesn't include the supernatural. So the liberals just rarely will want to engage what we're doing. Um, Because religion still matters. Who asked that? Yeah. Because religion still matters. Tradition still matters. And they the testament of a book that is 3,000 years old uh, is still worthy of careful study. But they do not want to surrender to the God that is there, rather defragment it, break it apart. So some key principles for doing word studies. Number one, and this may go against what you've seen practiced from the pulpit at times in various places you've been. But these principles guide my understanding of how words work. Number one, the history and makeup of a word is not a reliable meaning guide to meaning. So past usage of terms is not necessarily equivalent to current usage. Consider awful. Awful no longer is a term of deep reverence. Awful. Instead, in contemporary English, it just means that was bad. And yet, there are those in their teaching and preaching that camp on past usage and try to say, we need to fill out this meaning of awful. And sometimes you're trying to carry freight into a word that is never on the minds of a contemporary writer. In biblical Hebrew, we see an example of this with the term zakan. Zakan means beard. And it probably, in early times, had an association with being old, mature. So we've got two verbs. Zakain means to grow old. And zakain, the adjective, means just he's old. Zakan means beard. But when you look at the biblical text... There isn't a direct link, at least anymore in the, in the time when the Bible is being written, there doesn't appear to be a direct link between having a beard and being considered old. It's as if, the, even though the, the terms are related, zakan and zakain, that the, the connection isn't there anymore. Or consider this, it's similar. Similar roots do not necessarily have similar meaning though authors can do word plays. In English, the verb undertake versus the noun undertaker. Undertaker has a much more limited meaning in English, at least as we use it today. Whereas you can broadly say he undertook this task, and it could be any task. The undertaker is specifically... Related to the morgue. The last guy in town to ever let you down. <laughs> the last guy in town to ever let you down. Thank you, John. Or a professional boxer. <laughs> the noun adult doesn't today have any direct connection to adultery. But the roots have a relationship. In biblical Hebrew, the term midbar means wilderness, desert. But there's a verb 
called deber, which means to speak. So to speak is the verbal form using that root. Midbar, wilderness, desert. And it seems to me, if there was ever any connection, it, it may just be that they were homonyms spelled similarly, but from two different two roots that were spelled exactly the same that are now apparent in biblical Hebrew, but we're not supposed to say, you know, it, whenever you see the verb to speak, it's not telling us something about the dryness of the teacher. Simply because the root is, is similar to the root that's found in the term for desert. A voice crying in the wilderness. So that, that's what I'm getting at here. Comparative languages are unreliable guides. Now, it can help for memorization. My son missed dunamis on his recent Greek vocabulary test that daddy graded. And I, I said, son, just think of dynamite. Power. That's what dunamis means. Power. And yet... Dynamite, yes, it was called dynamite because of its relationship to the Greek term dunamis. And while it may help my son remember what dunamis means to go backwards, we're not supposed to automatically build the connection. When people talk about dynamite, they're not thinking about dunamis. They're just thinking about a stick that can go boom. Yes. Paul did not say the gospel was dynamite. He didn't say it was dynamite. That's right. That's exactly right. He didn't say that the gospel was dynamite. Wow. Second principle. Usage in context determines meaning. So... What we're saying is that context is king. You could have a range of meanings, and even in your context, the author chose to actually express the word in a way that it's not found in exactly that way elsewhere. And it's the context that is forcing you to determine meaning, not its range of usage outside. So in English, I I like this example. In English, minutes can be parts of an hour or notes from a meeting, depending on context. Oh, this wasn't the example. I have it, I, I have it later, sorry. Um, yeah, I just remembered what it is. It's coming. Um, in Hebrew, the term ruach, the exact same term, can mean wind or spirit. And it doesn't always mean that God's presence is active. It can just mean the wind is blowing the trees. But it's the context that clarifies whether it's spirit with a small s, spirit with a capital S, or not spirit at all, but rather wind. You can. So the question was, can you find examples in poetic context where the author actually is doing a wordplay? Where he's actually allowing there to be a double meaning that's intended by him. And yes, there is. But the context is what will give you that signal. In English, reformed can simply be a general adjective, meaning he's a reformed man. You know, what he used to be and what he is. But it can also be a very specific technical term for like an entire religious movement, reformed theology. But it's the context that clarifies that. Satan, Satan, Satan is the general term for accuser. And it can be used of angels or humans. But it's context that clarifies whether this is Satan, namely the prince of demons. You can have a non-Satan figure who's called accuser. 
it's the context that clarifies that meaning. Another element, you want to look out for idioms. Idioms are where you have a combination of a verb and a preposition that together can communicate something special, unique, that if you try to force it literally, it's not going to make as much sense, but it's idiomatic. Wow, he hit that one out of the park. Hit out of the park. And you're talking about someone's lecture. Idioms. In English, the phrase, just a minute, this was my example. This is the one I liked. Just a minute um, refers to an undefined period and could not be applied to the statement, the Sunday school teaching time will be 50 minutes long. Well, actually, this is what was funny is, yeah, that's about right. Um, who knows how long it will be? Um, but minute, we can use it broadly. We can use it generically for a small amount of time. I'll be there in just a minute. And my kids are waiting and waiting, and Dad once again got distracted. In biblical Hebrew, the, the phrase, day of the Lord. Now, some have tried to say, Originally, the concept of the day of the Lord grew out of the ancient Near Eastern background where really good kings could defeat the biggest armies in a single 24-hour period. But when you read the Bible, as it unpacks the day of the Lord theme, it's focusing not on an amount of time, but on a period of time. And I think even today, we're still living amidst the day that's been inaugurated, but that has not been consummated, those who are in Jesus, those who are not in Jesus, are still awaiting the full big daddy day of the Lord to be started. But at the cross, Jesus bore the day of wrath and inaugurated the day of new creation, both of which are the day of the Lord. And it's a period that can be used as yom, day. But elsewhere, yom as day actually means a 24-hour period as you and I know it. Other times, yom can mean the period of that 24 hours that includes light as opposed to the night. So we have to assess context and look out for idioms. Meaning, assigned meanings must not be too limited. So what I mean is, You can't say, limit a certain type of swim stroke and say that's all that swimming is. Numerous arm strokes can qualify as swimming. And so when you're assessing meaning, you don't want to limit it too greatly. In biblical Hebrew, you may have heard some people talk about bara. That's the verb for create. God's the only subject of this verb in the entire Bible. No other agent is said to create. But to limit the meaning to create out of nothing doesn't actually do justice to Genesis chapter 5-1 where we're told God created man. And Genesis 2-7 tells us he created man out of the dust. Like he used agency. It wasn't the creation of man out of nothing. It was the creation of man through something. So to limit the meaning of bara to creation out of nothing, I agree, God created the universe out of nothing. But that's a contextual assessment. It's not all bound up in this one verb. Authorial, historical, geographical, and formal correspondence manner when determining meaning. What I mean here is, first stop in your word study is, well, what did your author, does your author, the the author of this book, use your word anywhere else? Because different authors might use your term in different ways, but it's most natural to look at your author and let him be your first step in assessing the meaning of your word. 
So if you're considering the meaning of the feminine noun tzedakah, righteousness, in Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness, the first stop is to look at the eight other instances of tzedakah in the Pentateuch, all of which were written by Moses. And then if you're bold enough, you could step out and consider other words related to tzedakah in the Pentateuch, like tzedak, to declare righteous, tzedek, to be righteous, tzedek, righteousness, in a masculine noun, and look at all those contexts. That would be a conceptual study, not just a word study. Historical correspondence. What I mean is, if you're trying to get into, understand what, what specifically, what type of ruler Micah was envisioning when he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come a ruler. Micah 5.2. Assessing Isaiah's usage, who's a contemporary of Micah living in the same city, his would be a more direct historical, because of that historical correspondence, it would be a more direct stop than jumping, moving ahead to Isaiah, sorry, to Zechariah, a couple hundred years later, or going all the way back to Moses. But the challenge here is knowing that, oh, these prophets also used their Bibles. So Micah's use of ruler may actually be directly growing out of Moses' use in the first five books of the Bible. So you've got to also keep that in mind. There's also geographical correspondence and other types of formal correspondence. If you're in poetry versus prose, we'll look at how it's used elsewhere in poetry. That would make sense. Geographical correspondence, you might need, it would be a lot more work, but scholars have recognized that there are even dialects in biblical Hebrew. So that the Israelites in the north and the Judeans in the south, on some things, were actually talking differently. There was that southern drawl, right? So I just want to bring this together now and just consider if you were to take the time to actually do a word study on your own, and it's a fair amount of work to actually track down the right number and then go use the tools, but it can also be, I mean, it's just a path of discovery. You're not just receiving food. You're actually going into the kitchen and making it yourself. And then you have other tools that can confirm or clarify if you missed anything. Or just affirm what you've discovered. So how would you do it? Number one, you choose a Hebrew word to study. Well, how do I pick which one I want to do? I've just got a whole list of possibilities to get your mind turning. If you're like, this verse has meant so much to me and I want to dig in deeper. Number one, you study words or phrases that are theologically significant or crucial to a passage's understanding. So when God says, if you will keep my covenant, heed my voice, and be my treasured possession... Boy, that just seems important there in Exodus 19.5, a treasured possession. Wow, I look it up in my Hebrew and I find it's only used seven times in the rest of the Bible. Notice I've got both the Strong's numbers and the Goodrich Kohlenberger numbers right there. I look those up and now I'm ready to use my tools. I can just track the numbers and then begin to discover. Only seven instances for sugula in the rest of the Bible. I could do that word study. I have, you shall love the Lord with all. This is a different kind of love. A love that can be commanded. Love me, God says. And I've never said that to my wife. I've expressed gratitude that she does love me. I've declared that she does love me. But I've never looked at her and say, Woman, love this man. A preacher might be able to do that, calling husbands to love wives, wives to love husbands. But in doing so, he's operating as a mouthpiece of the Lord. 
How can God do this? And I want to dig inside of that word love. Study words or phrases that are puzzling or unclear. I don't really understand what that means. Like, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity? The love of a man to a woman, the love between people and God, that's vanity. Everything is vanity, according to the preacher. What does he mean by that? It's puzzling to me. So I dig in and I look it up. Study words or phrases that have figurative meanings. So things like the circumcision of the heart. I don't think, Moses, you understand what those two concepts mean because they don't go together. It assumes there's a foreskin on a heart, and I have no idea what you're talking about. You're, you're obviously talking figuratively here, and so you dive in. Study words or phrases that are apparent synonyms or antonyms. Okay, he, he chose, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, I will lightly esteem or curse. So, he uses that language in 1 Samuel 2.30. Is it normal that these two words would be contrasting? And what does he mean by these two words? To honor and despise. Study words or phrases that are repeated and or clearly central to the meaning of the passage. So, repeated words. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. When it says it was good in Genesis chapter 1, does that mean morally good? That is, the absence of any evil. Or does it just mean that in God's providence, how he set up the world, it was right? What I mean is, many people think that there's already the presence of Satan in Genesis 1. And yet it was good. Because it's in accordance with God's ultimate plan to bring about the need for the cross. How do we understand good in that context? Is it significant that in Genesis chapter 2, already there is a tree of the knowledge pertaining to good and evil? That is, good in Genesis 2 is actually contrasted with evil. Meaning that it's a moral goodness, not just a relative goodness in accordance with God's purpose. It's standing in contrast to that which is against God. So can I take that back into Genesis 1? When I see that repetition, it's actually declaring to me, God is saying, there is something morally right about my world. And that sin only enters in after that. Or the devil only enters in after that. That's a word study. Wrestle with it. Study words or phrases that are infrequent. It doesn't show up that much. This phrase, asof, asaf, in Zephaniah chapter 1, I started wrestling on that in my, when I was writing my commentary, and it became a whole article that trying to tackle, what does this phrase mean? I see what all the English translations did, and I think they're wrong based on my own assessment of this in context and in its broader biblical usage. So what do I do with that? I write an article and hope to influence future translations. But it, it's a very infrequent phrase. The grammatical construction is infrequent. And what do we do with that? Some of these types of questions, you'll be more reliant on scholars to be wrestling with, but other ones you can ask and answer through your own work. Step two, once you've identified what word you want to wrestle with, then you discover the range of meaning for your Hebrew word within Scripture. And you can see up here on the screen, I've got different levels. Number one, at the center, and these are concentric circles of, of analysis. So you might say, I can only do a word study this morning during my devotions. 
This joy thing that I just started, joy in Isaiah, I mean, we talked a lot about joy during my, our two and a half years walking through the book, but I've never systematically put it all together. And it's going to take me days and days and days of walking through the 249 occurrences of different aspects of joy and rejoice and gladness in the book of, Zephan, in, in the book of Isaiah and then packaging it, understanding the categories and working it all together. So you start with your target text, and then you move out to the same book, and then you move out to the same author. So you might be looking at love in Deuteronomy 6.5, and then the next step is to look at love in Deuteronomy, but then you'd say, what else did the author write? You'd look at love in all five books of the Pentateuch. And then you go to the same period, genre, or division. So if there's prophets of the same period then all, all, like the 8th century prophets, they might all be using the word in similar ways. Or you might say, I'm going to assess the poetic books, or I'm going to assess the writings. You look at the rest of the Old Testament. Then you look at other Hebrew literature. Then you look at ancient versions like the Septuagint, the Greek translation. How did they handle it? And then you go broadly to other related languages. And a lot of this information is shown in the dictionaries. So you, number one, after you've picked your word, you want to generate your list of key texts. And in a computer concordance, it becomes really easy, but you can follow the Kohlenberger-Swanson Hebrew-English concordance of the Old Testament and come up with the same list. But I generated this list this morning. I just want to find all the texts that include the term seed, zerah, in the Old Testament. There's 229 instances of that noun, seed. So I, I start here, and then I make a list. This is how Deroshi does it. How do I do a, an original word study? I take this and I put each verb, sorry, each occurrence, scriptural reference, in a chart, over here. I don't know what these columns are yet. Those are to be discovered. I can get a general idea by looking at a lexicon at the range of meanings that they've supplied. But if you want to do it all on your own in order to confirm and discover and have deeper conviction rather than just having to rely on a scholar's work, but your own personal conviction, I've done this myself, I, I think I know what it's saying, then you put all the verses over here in the column and you just go one at a time. One verse at a time and you say, how is seed used here? Well, in Genesis 1, 11 through 12 and in verse 29, six times the term shows up and it's all about seed, as in seed in a plant. Well, I just catalog the data. I go on to 315. Whoa. The offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. This is not plant life. This is about a unique seed. It appears to be biological. But in the same context, there's also seed that's associated with the serpent. The serpent has seed. Does this mean little snakes? Or does this mean a spiritual offspring? So a unique kind of seed. Then we go to... The fact that Adam knew Eve and she gave birth to a, a son and named him Seth in place of Abel because Cain had killed him. I'm trying to remember where it shows up. It's that verse, 425, where it says she gave birth to another seed another offspring, to replace Abel because Cain had killed him. Now we're looking at a special natural seed. And I said Old Covenant Nation. That, I don't know why I put that there. Um, anyway, I go through 229 different instances. When there's only seven, it's a lot easier. 229, it can get wearying and tiring. But I go through all these. And then the next step is to catalog all of my data. So there's 11 pages of this. 
is what I came up with, 11 pages. And as I'm walking through text by text, the columns up top are actually being discovered. As I look at, in context, how this word is being used. But then I go through and I say, okay, where do I find all the plants? Where do I find all the animals? And I put all of the groupings together and create a single chart, which is much more easily put together. And you can see all the actual verses on your last page there. But plant seed or seed time, there's 43 instances in the entire Old Testament where zerah, seed, is used that way. Animal seed, only three in the entire Bible, that Old Testament, that talk about animal seed. Most occurrences of seed occur with respect to natural human offspring. But then there's a focus in, a focus in on, I mean, male semen, not too often. Natural seed, just generally stated, 87 occurrences. Special natural seed, specifically referring to a pre-exilic Old Covenant community. So that we can learn that Eliezer of Damascus was not Abraham's seed, but he was his heir. And God said, no, he will not be your heir. You'll have a seed, an offspring from your own body to be your heir. And then we learn that it's not through Ishmael will your offspring be reckoned, but through Isaac. There's a selection, a special, a narrowing. It doesn't, it's not just all biological seed. It's a limited amount of biological seed. Then special natural seed, post-exilic Old Covenant community. Special natural seed, singular male descendant with a key role in redemptive history. And then special regenerated adopted seed, redeemed New Covenant community that includes both ethnic Israelites and Gentiles, all of them considered seed. And my challenge was, how do we know? I mean, Paul says... That God made the promises to Abraham and to his seed, that is Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are also Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And I wanted to see, did Paul come up with this on his own? Apart from Old Testament anticipation? Or was all of this already expected in the Old Testament? So I did a giant word study on seed and came up with my conclusions. Time of discovery, 229 instances. So once I discover the range of meaning, so so that's the goal, I generate my list, I categorize my meanings, I catalog and assess my data, then I have to determine whether or not, okay, I did one word, zerah. Do I want to expand my study to include all the verbs of to bear seed? Or how about sons and daughters? That would be, concept. Then I determine the meaning of my Hebrew word in my target context. So kinds of questions I'm asking. What does the immediate literary context clarify about your word's meaning? What comes before and after to help give us insight? Does your author use the same term elsewhere in the book? Do other Old Testament authors appropriate the term in similar settings or when addressing similar issues? Does the New Testament ever quote or allude to your text in a way that clarifies meaning? Does the author use the word in a different manner from the way others do? So you're just narrowing it in, asking, how do I understand my word in context? All the meanings are not part of my passage. It's used in a very specific way, yet he chose this word as opposed to others, to to express what he wants to get across. So what does it mean? So once you've answered what the word means, you decide what you believe to be, once you answer all these questions, you decide what you believe to be the meaning of your passage in context, you argue your case in writing, because it'll help you be as clear as possible. And then finally, you compare your conclusions to what others have said in those word study tools that I pointed to. There is nothing like personal discovery when it comes to studying the Bible. There's a big difference to going to K Jewelers in the mall and being part of a dig in Botswana. Big difference. 
to actually be on the ground in the, dis- the digging up of diamonds versus going to the store and buying your wife's wedding ring. That's a wonderful experience, but it's not the same. And I'm urging you to increasingly become slower readers of the Bible at times, at times, in order that you can dig up diamonds. May the Lord bless you. That's it. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.